On today's show, Larry calls Mark a poser. Let me see your hands. You got city hands. You've been counting money all your life. Toby saw saw, and he'll see saw again. And guest Victor Pham talks horror. Praise! This is Plot Points Podcast. This is Mark. Uh, this is Plot Points Podcast. Welcome. Thank you for uh, being with us today. We have a full house. Unfortunately, we're missing um, our co-host, Mary Claire Anderson, who is preparing for her wedding, which is coming very soon. Congratulations, Mary Claire. We joke a lot about it, but um, it's a wonderful thing, I'm sure. Never mind about these statistics. Uh, I, I just want to mention it. It's a wonderful thing, dot, dot, dot. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. I've read some very upbeat, positive articles. <laughs> so we have at the table, uh, our, you just heard his dulcet tones. That's our engineer, Toby Walwork. And this is the sound of my voice. Uh, we also have uh, co-hosting uh, for Mary Claire is Victor Fan. Hello. Thank you, Mark, for having me on oh, the show. Sure. And sitting next to him, although she doesn't have a mic in front of her, is Talia, his uh, wonderful, beautiful... Smart and uh, vivacious girlfriend, um, and then uh, at the end of the table, uh, looking w- looking wonderful today, is uh, Larry Porcelli, Loren- Lorenzo, who is the vice president, senior vice president of Maya Cinemas, um, and also is the president of SCWA, which is the Southern California Writers Association. The, you can go to scwaanthology.com to see the book that they just that they're publishing. Or you can go to ocwriter.com to the website, or just show up at Claim Jumper in Fountain Valley every third Saturday at 10 o'clock. They have wonderful guests, and um, yeah, and they drink a lot. So, um, Victor is a, a. We're all board members, by the way, uh, of OC Screenwriters. We have an event coming up on November 11th um, at the Claim Jumper. We have uh, Frank Chindamo, who is a wonderful new media uh, teacher who he teaches at um, Chapman, I think, Chapman. Um, and so that's check that check the website, uh, check our podcast website. But Victor is an instructor, a, a uh, almost a tenured instructor at uh, Cal State Fullerton. Yeah, yeah, I've been there for a while now. Yeah, and uh, he also writes, directs, produces. He's a tech wizard. Um, he edits. I just don't know what else. He, he's really a, a slash, 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 slash. Plus, he's one of my favorite guys. So um, so he's here for us. And the reason we asked Victor in um, instead of Shadia, who we love, is because Victor is uh, does a lot of very, really amazing horror uh, stuff, including teaches it and um, writes it. You've got uh, – what's your Amazon um, author page? Um, you could just pull up my name, Victor Fan, on Amazon, and it'll bring up all my, my novels, my novellas, my short stories. Okay, and that's P-H-A-N. Oh, he's also an amazing artist. I, I dropped that out of there somehow. <laughs> Illustrator, artist. Uh, I just, I mean. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a very long list. Yeah, Something's it is. Gonna fall it off is. I'll put it on the website. No, I won't. Uh, in the show notes. So, um, so that's the table. Uh, if you want to ask a question or talk to us in any way, shape, or form, you can go to 919 Scripts. That's N, N, uh, N. That's 919-S-C-R-I-P-T-S, which I don't – the number's on the website, which is plotpoints.com. 
And then uh, don't forget to um, – I'll put some information about the event coming up, but uh, that should be great too. So before we get too much further into it, I wanted to ask you guys um, not only what are we watching, but I want to talk a little bit about sequelitis. Um, is that killing Hollywood or is that just bullshit? Well, I mean, I, I get why it's there. Like, you know, the the current Hollywood paradigm is is they don't want to take risks on anything yeah. new, right? Because it costs us $100 million to make a movie and another $100 million to advertise said movie. Mm-hmm. So they kind of have to guarantee a built-in audience. Mm-hmm. So I understand where it's coming from. But creatively, I I see the, the ramifications of it. Well, Larry, you, you're in the distribution uh, and, and d- d- you display – you guys – Mayas is – has uh, four theaters and 25 coming up in uh, in the Central Valley. What are you guys seeing as far as, like, uh, like It was a huge success, right? Oh, yeah, it's phenomenal. Yeah. And what about, I mean, are other sequels doing well, or are you seeing a drop-off in uh, ticket sales on some of those? Well, you'll always see a drop-off uh, depending on the type of film it is. But the, the uh, thought on it is... We're going basically. We're going to milk it as long as we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, um, why not? That's their, you know, it's business, and that's what they do. The creativity is lacking a lot of the times. However, you do get the creativity. Disney is very big on their sequels, and they do come up with great new stories for new characters, especially in the Marvel lineup. And Warner's has taken a tip from them and is trying the new whole new thing with their superhero line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, superheroes I think are a different, slightly different subject yeah. because yeah. there's there's the there's the superhero, then there's right. the interaction with the group like the Justice right. League and the uh, Avengers and stuff like that. If um, you're go ahead. If you're speaking horror, um, again the same thought runs. Let's do it again. Now it was phenomenal in its, but the, I can give you that later. The, the reason for it, but. They were already filming it too, mm. so uh, that was done with a script already finished and ready to go before the film hit. So they had some inkling. Warner Brothers has been perhaps the um, best at pushing smaller film to make it bigger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I mean, I read. I'm reading articles that suggest that sequels are the problem in Hollywood. That there. Are, that, that the box office is down 4% from last year, and it's because there's too many sequels, too many non-original uh, pieces of material being. And, and so I just thought m- maybe that's true, but also Halloween is, a, is good for sequels, right? Uh, the, the box office is really great for those. It uh, is. Jigsaw you, is a sequel, right? Sure. Jigsaw, if you look, well, it's not a sequel it's a, sequel, it's a, but it's yeah. a uh, portion of the Saw people's right. films. Right. So they call it a Jigsaw because they went to another studio with it. Well, yeah. and, and Tobin Bell's, uh, the, the killer is still, he was in yeah. one of my movies, by the way. He played a serial killer. Go figure. Is that um, right? Called serial yeah, killer. That, that, guy, <laughs> that guy needs to be in a rom-com yeah. real bad <laughs> just because he has neighbors and they've got to look out the window and go <laughs> all the time. I, I know he's I know he's got a dead body in that trunk. <laughs> oh, people just enjoy being scared, and yes. they enjoy. There's two types of horror. You know, you have film that's terror, and you have film that's just so revoltingly horrible that it is terrifying. Yeah. Such as, you know, we're well, we'll, wait, 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 wait. We'll get into that. <laughs> we'll get into. Not, I'm just talking about. I want to talk about sequels, but we're we're pretty much done with that subject. I just. I often wonder if the industry people are just um, running scared and just picking up whatever thread uh, to explain whatever they can at the time, and if it re- is it is it real or not. And I don't, 
I don't actually think that sequels are the kiss of death. I think they're just bad. I think they're, if they're bad sequels, they're the kiss of death. Right. right. Sequels have been like your bread and butter. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm me. Just saying. Oh, yeah, but I, I just want to say on the air now that I actually have a Fangoria article from 1992 or 1994. Shh, don't tell the year. <laughs> saying, <laughs> saying the king of Roman numerals, Mr. Mark Sevy here. So I find it interesting that that we're talking about this, you know? Well, I, but I was hired specifically f- for to write B-movies that did well. Like, uh, I'll tell you what happened. It was uh, Cinetel, who I worked, uh, did a lot of work with, bought Vestron Videos, uh, part of Vestron Videos mm-hmm. library. And a lot of those library, those titles, they looked at the titles and said, what would make a good sequel? Because it already had market uh, appeal and stuff. Right. And so they picked out 12, 12 sequel titles and they bought the rights for them. I wrote seven of them or something like that. Um, but uh, or actually, I wrote more that didn't get produced. There was a couple that I wrote that didn't never got done. I got paid for it, but they never produced it. Mm-hmm. But that's what that was about. And, and sequels are, you know, they have a built-in box office. They have a built-in audience. The same mm-hmm. with novels. Same with, you know, Game of Thrones um, is, you know, they're sequeling Game of Thrones every week. That's a, It's a long-form narrative, but it's just basically a sequel after, you know, so. Mm-hmm. I was trying to think of what I was watching this week. And I just didn't have time to watch much television or movie-wise. Um, I did. I am still going through all the Star Trek things. I don't know why. I honestly don't. I mean, it's not like I'm, I think I'm going to get hired to write anything, uh, so I need to catch up on it. But I'm just kind of looking for some escapism, so that's what I've been watching. Anybody been watching anything interesting this week? Just Talia is a lot younger than me, so we've been watching all the classic horror movies that she never got to watch as a little kid growing up. Um, I think it's interesting because... I grew up in, you know, I grew up in the 80s where cable wasn't cool yet. Mm-hmm. And because of that, broadcast TV had all the movies on it. So every weekend I could just stay home and literally watch all these classic horror movies on Channel 9, Channel 13, right. etc. I've actually seen all of Mark's movies on Channel 13 as a little kid. <laughs> um, but she grew up in an era where cable, satellite, all that stuff has penetrated the market. But even though we have all of these new, these bigger distribution channels, they get less media than the kids that grew up in the 80s. Yeah, did, that's true. There's not, a, there's not a central place to go for these movies anymore. I right. remember Saturday mornings just sitting in front of the television and watching The Man with Two Brains and, <laughs> you know, Plan 9 from Outer Space and, right. uh, you know, Forbidden Planet and all mm-hmm. those stuff. But now you got to go to Chiller or you got to go all over the dial, to, yeah. it, so right. to speak, to find them. Yeah. Are you, I'm sorry, what am what I are you watching? It's uh, been like a weird week. I've been watching just flipping through anything but uh on netflix i've been watching mind hunters oh yeah I'm two episodes in uh i really enjoy it and uh, i was talking to somebody about kind of an attitude about uh certain films and filmmakers uh and this is a david fincher thing mm-hmm. and um I find, and I know we're going to talk about John Carpenter, and I I would assign him the same respect, is certain filmmakers you watch on their terms. You don't watch the movie because of what you want. You watch the movie to see what does this person want to tell me about this thing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, as he did with House of Cards, uh, he's doing it with Mindhunters. It's like, it's, on the surface, it's about, the advent of hunting serial killers, but it's not really about serial killers. It's mm-hmm. about the guys that hunt the serial killers. Absolutely, and uh, which is which is fantastic because we certainly don't need to sensationalize it. It's not on its on its worst day. It's not some sort of Dexter esque uh, you know uh, content. So I am enjoying that. I'm going really slow. I'm actually trying to uh, self impose. Uh, the, the counter binge, mm. uh, whatever the opposite of binge would be, I guess would be purge. 
But uh, <laughs> I'm trying to like take it slow and and ruminate on it a little bit rather than just absorb as much as I can. So mm-hmm. that's that's probably the biggest thing this week. Yeah, that's on the list definitely. Uh, I can't. It's hard for me to watch it because I had exactly the same idea. Um, and I put it out there, and I'm sure they were working on theirs before I was working on mine, but it just pisses me off that now I can't sell mine. So <laughs> I had exactly the same. Because I've been I, – I don't know John Douglas, but I did know Robert Ressler, and he is – he was instrumental in that. So. Right. Um, but I do like Fincher, and um, I do like the concept a lot. So um, it's definitely getting great word of mouth. Yeah. All right, I'm going to jump into my focus this week, which is John Carpenter. Picture this, a title on the screen, Antarctica, winter 1982. A low bass note thrums, doom, doom, doom. A snowy white field in the Arctic framed by mountains as old as time itself held in a shaky camera lens. A distant helicopter comes over the mountains full throttle. It says Norge on the sign, which is Norwegian. A man, his beard frosted with ice, leans out of the open door military style as he scans the pristine white blanket ahead with the binoculars. He signals to the pilot. Cut to a Malamute, which is a dog like a husky, running full on in the deep snow, anxious, panicked. It keeps looking back. What's chasing it? Why is it so afraid? It spots the chopper, runs even faster as the man with the binoculars trades him for a high-powered scoped rifle, heavy caliber, military, nothing sporty about it. He sights down on the dog, shoots, shoots again, can't quite hit it, but he continues to fire desperately as the dog runs. The cat-and-mouse game continues until the dog is in range of an outpost, an American scientific outpost. The dog races toward a friendly human being to help it, save it from being hunted by these madmen. The chopper circles around, lands quickly on its pontoons. The men in the chopper are frantic. They wave the Americans off, shouting in a language not understood, but being perfectly clear in their gestures, although the whys of it are still not understood. One of the Norwegians tries to throw a grenade at the dog, but it slips out of his hand and blows him and the chopper to shreds. The other man with the rifle continues forward, screaming, wild eyes, babbling in Norwegian. The dog licks his new American friend's face, a universal gesture built deeply genetically into both canine and human being. Questions, more questions. The Norwegian man screams one time, raises his rifle and fires, hitting one of the Americans in the leg. The men scatter. The dog runs away. The Norwegian continues to fire as the Americans dive for cover, not understanding what is happening, but certainly there is death banging out of that H&K rifle. From a nearby hut, the commander of the installation breaks a window and suddenly kills the Norwegian with his service revolver, instantly dead. The dog finds another friend to be with, as only stunned silence and deadly questions remain. That's the opening to one of the best sci-fi horror films ever made, the 1982 version of The Thing, written by Bill Lancaster and directed at the height of his powers by John Carpenter. And it does so many things right that I use it in my intro class, an example of how to open a film. Not a false movement anywhere. You could no more walk away from that film once you see the opening than a starving man could walk away from the aroma of barbecue ribs. The movie was based on a novella by John Campbell called Who Goes There? It was originally adapted into a film in 1951, which was also terrific, but the Carpenter version hues more closely to the original story. The Thing was part of what Carpenter later called his Apocalypse Trilogy, a trio of films, The Thing, Prince of Darkness, and In the Mouth of Madness, with bleak endings for the film's characters. The movie didn't do well, oddly enough, but it garnered a rabid cult following that still remains today as new generations discovered, as um, Victor mentioned with uh, Talia. By the way, if you think it was, if you think just because Carpenter is not listed as a writer that he didn't contribute, the writer Bill Lancaster had only five Bad News Bear movies as his other IMDb credits. So obviously, the thing really wasn't his natural bent. I, did, I just found that just really odd that he wrote The Thing and five Bad, Near, Bad News Bears movies. 
You may not know John Carpenter. He's not as active today as he was in the 70s and 80s when he was making films that thrilled and terrified movie audiences. You may not know him, but you do know his work. Starting with Halloween in 1978, starring Jamie Lee Curtis and following through with such notable films as The Thing, Big Trouble in Little China, The Fog, Escape from New York, Starman, Prince of Darkness, and The Mouth of Madness, and dozens of others. Some he wrote, some he directed, and some he composed the music for, and some he did all three. But movies like Halloween will always be his legacy. We take it for granted these days, but before Halloween, there were very few films that featured the beautiful virginal high school girl being terrorized and somehow surviving the homicidal maniac who wielded a knife or a machete with deadly results. I mean, if she's not safe, then who is? Carpenter shoved that archetype in our brains along with the faceless slasher who is inhuman and unstoppable. Not really supernatural horror, although the killer was seemingly invulnerable. Carpenter created an all-too-real scenario that played to our deepest fears. Imagine one of the most benign of holidays where kids scream in mock horror and real delight being co-opted by this genius into something truly horrifying. Monsters in costume and makeup roamed the streets, but real monsters invaded suburban household and brutally tore adults to shreds. Now that's real horror. There's no way the beautiful girl next door could survive these abominations of evil, and yet somehow she did. Of course, Hitchcock's Psycho and the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which preceded Halloween, must have inspired Carpenter. But he elevated the form to the nth degree and dragged out every bloody, suspenseful moment available. The sight of escape maniac Michael Myers standing in broad daylight in the middle of a nice suburban neighborhood is just chilling. He wasn't hiding in the dark or in an isolated area as he stalked people. He showed himself boldly. He didn't care if you saw him or not. He knew only one mission, kill. If you think about the Terminator... You can see where Cameron got some of his inspiration. Halloween was co-written by Carpenter. Deborah Hill is listed as a co-writer. But he also directed, scored, and produced the film. It was a massive hit. The budget was $300,000, and it grossed $70 million worldwide. In 2017, that would be a quarter of a billion dollars. Any movie in any era that returns 233 times its budget is going to get noticed, and it did. It started what we know of horror films today. There's no horror movie since then that, hasn't ref- that isn't reflecting some of Carpenter's work. The movie Scream played with some of the horror tropes that Carpenter established to great success, the chastity versus the casual sex, for example. But Carpenter swears he never intended any of his films to be allegories. He made what films he wanted to see, and I think that's a great way to, to write. Um, I have some background information about Carpenter, but I want to kind of move on. Um, he basically went to USC, met, met uh, Dan O'Banion, who wrote a- Alien. They, they did a, pre- a feature called uh, Dark, Dark Star. Star, which ended up being a lot like um, Alien, what Alien was. Um, he also directed Starman and The Eyes of Laura Mars, which I really enjoyed, those, those two films. Um, I think what, what I like most about Carpenter is he took – Parts of Hitchcock, Toby Hooper, Edgar Allan Poe, Dario Argento, Mario mm-hmm. Bava, who are Italian um, giallo uh, directors and writers, H.P. Lovecraft, and many other horror masters, and put them in a mixed master of his mind to produce films that really never bore you and almost always scare the living crap out of you. Um, his films last. I mean, don't you think that are you, we're still watching these films, right? Yeah, Absolutely. Time. Yeah. yeah. What, uh, what, what one Carpenter film could you watch over and over again? I mean, uh, I watch Halloween all the time. We watch The Thing all the time. Mm. And uh, maybe when we get home tonight, we'll watch In the Mouth of Madness because mm. I think that's the, the end-all, be-all in his series, definitely. Okay. Toby? I would definitely say, for me personally, it's The Thing. Um, that film, if it's on, 
you know, I'm staying up. I'm watching it. Uh, it's it's the dumbest thing because I, I got like the Blu-ray someplace. But if you just stumble across it, it's such a gift, and you're like, oh, the, it, um, the, the, because it's a, it's such a sophisticated film with with so much going on that uh, I mean, not not to besmirch any of the other films. You know, Halloween. It's 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 kind of mission focused. It's it's actually not as uh, not as concentrated as people often remember. Go back and watch Halloween, and there's a lot of yeah, there's, there's a lot of tone. There's a lot of build. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think what you said earlier about specifically uh, every, almost every horror film that came after Halloween is in some way a, a bit of a remake of it. Yes. Of it certainly a derivative. Um, the, the, to say that it's like the prototype or the template, even that does it a disservice because it's been so, such such pale imitations afterwards. But um, but we'll yeah. come back to that in a second. Later. No, no. Larry, what's your what's your uh, yeah? What's your favorite what's Carpenter? your favorite John Carpenter movie? Well, mine was the thing, and whenever it's on, if I'm flipping or something, I stop because to see if I can still check the clues as to who was real and who mm-hmm. wasn't. Yeah, the thing is, I think for me, but also I really like Starman, even though it wasn't yes. written by him. Yeah, uh, and it led to an Academy Award nomination and Globe and Globe for um, the what's his name? Jeff Bridges. Jeff yeah, Jeff Bridges. Bridges. So, and that was produced by Michael Douglas, by mm-hmm. the way, who is another pretty impressive producer. So, I mean, for me, the, what I think it, Carpenter does most effectively is he he changes our uh, intellect, he changes our emotion into in, or our intellect into raw emotion. Um, we are the person hiding in the closet. We are Kurt Russell trying to figure out what's real and what's not. And I, I think he makes you leave yourself behind and slip into his reality. And I think that's the most important thing that a great filmmaker does. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that on Act 3. So um, he, he really hasn't been that active lately. Um, I did notice that there's a new Halloween movie scheduled for 2018. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's on the books uh, as a real thing or if it's just one of those we want to do it kind of things. But it'll be interesting to see, you know, re- revisiting it uh, 40 years later, what he, what he would do differently? Um, they because they've remade it a couple times, right? Yeah, Rob yeah. Zombie. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah. I I'm not a huge uh, fan of a lot of the remakes of uh, Carpenter stuff, but boy, if it even had uh, a shade of it, I didn't see the Rob Zombie one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, okay, so um, I mean, that's that's my my focus. Um, the reason I picked Carpenter obviously is because when you write a movie that describes a um, a, a big event like Halloween. I mean, a lot of people go crazy for Halloween. I'm yeah. not one of those, but <laughs> I do love horror films. So. Well, what I specifically like about John Carpenter is that he's, if, if we have such a thing as a blue-collar filmmaker, he would be in that category. I mean, he's Hollywood. I think he grew up here. No, he's uh, from he, Kentucky. He's from Kentucky. Yeah, yeah he, he came, came out here for USC. Yeah, he came yeah. here for USC. Yeah. So he's not really an outsider. Mm-hmm. But um, but and it's funny because he issues talk about uh, allegory and that kind of thing. But I think because of the time the time where he came and the fact that he was a hustler, he definitely tapped into. And I hate using this fancy book learning word. He definitely tapped into the zeitgeist about paranoia and how people were starting to feel very isolated individually mm-hmm. because all of his really good work is uh, an ordinary person in an extraordinary situation. And then he makes the extraordinary situation credible. Like, right, right. oh, she's just a regular girl going to high school. Oh, but there's a guy with a machete killing people. We buy that because we re- identify with, and actually, I think he's done a, a, a pretty decent job. Certainly, the people that have copied him haven't done as good a job of creating uh, strong, credible 
multifaceted dimensional women characters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, cool. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna segue into Victor's um, segment, which is on uh, horror films. Um, we're gonna do a little bit instead of this week or this month or this year in uh, film. Uh, I asked Victor to list uh, his top ten. Uh, or maybe I don't. Is it your list or somebody else's it's list? It's my list. Oh, so it's totally subjective, and you don't have to pay any attention to it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's one of those things too. Where after Mark asked me to do it, um, it shuffled around a lot. It actually shuffled around into this morning. So <laughs> now I'm married to it. I put a ring on his finger. And I have to walk it down the aisle. <laughs> so my top ten. Um, so number ten is Night of the Living Dead. Mm. You know, uh, wow. Written by John Russo and uh, and the late great George Romero and directed by George Romero. I mean, this film is what gave birth to the modern zombie. And all zombie Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. All zombie movies today and, you know, post-1968 are all because of George Romero's contributions. Um, the zombie movies became social satire about miscommunication between people. Um, the zombie virus became transferable from people to people. Zombies Which raised, pre- predated AIDS. Yeah. Zombies, um, you know, they were raising from the dead instead of being injected with... Uh, Haitian, you know, witch doctor venom, and um, and also they became cannibals, uh, which was the first thing, and you know the the allegory of communism and and also having a black man character. I mean, this movie just did so much, and and you know we you know the, we we hope that he's he's doing well wherever he's at, right, Mark? Yeah. It, it, what I love about we we may have to cut some of this segment because it sounds like it's going to go long. But what I love about Night of the Living Dead is it's freaking frightening as hell, shot on a shoestring. And just works. It still works to this day, even yeah. though the, the production values are. Oh man, what a what a terrific film! Yes, um, we do a retro series during October, and last week was Night of the Living Dead, and sold out at all four. Yeah, theaters. it has to. I'd love to see it on the big screen. That would be great. But I wasn't going to drive to Bakersfield to do that. So, okay, what do you got? What else you got? Oh, number nine. Number nine. My number nine. And it's, it's a personal thing because I re- researched everybody else's list and they didn't have this one. But um, it's Hellraiser, 1987, mm-hmm. uh, written and directed by Clive Barker based on his novella, um, The Hellbound Heart. And uh, the reason why I put this one up there is because this one's a, a, it's a gross, grotesque horror movie because it's you know a very S and M torture. Pin, yeah, Pinhead. Pinhead, right? But it was very unlike anything else that was done at the time. Um, you know, this is late '80s, so a lot of slasher stuff was out during this era, and this was not like any other slasher movie. Uh, it was very poetic in its cinematography, and it's also its allegories of what the, the puzzle box can represent to each person. And uh, on top of that, like it impressed Stephen King so much that he said, "I have seen the future of horror fiction." And mm-hmm. His name is Clive Barker. Clive Barker, yeah. Yeah. Heard that quote. Number eight. Number eight. Uh, we talked about this movie a lot, but my number eight would be Halloween, written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, and directed by John Carpenter. I mean, I don't really have to go into attention. Yeah, on this, we, but we talked a lot. We covered about, it. Uh, yeah. Seven. Jaws. Jaws. Yeah. Nineteen seventy-five, written by Peter Benchley and Carl Gottlieb. And uh, based on a novel by Peter Benchley, directed by Steven Spielberg. I can never think of Jaws as a horror film. I don't know why. Why mm-hmm. is that? It just doesn't seem that way. Well, but it is. It's considered one of the greatest horror films ever, right? Yeah. It's the the scene with the girl getting killed in the the very beginning is on so many oh, people's yeah. top ten oh, my God. lists of. Uh, it's actually number one of the scariest scene of all time. Well, when you think about it, horror horror does call uh, there's sci sci-fi horror, which is creature feature, and mm-hmm. this is a creature. The thing is, it's not other. Uh, I guess it is a little supernatural because it's unstoppable. It's you. And stuff, yeah, so, yeah, but I, I think people. I see. I remember when I, you know, Blockbuster was a thing. If you guys remember that, and I remember well, finding Jaws in the 
finding Jaws in the action adventure like uh, section yeah. because there's a lot of adventure, in, especially in the third act with the three, you know, the yeah. three boatsmen. It's it's legit. Also. Yeah, six. Um, six. We talked about this movie a lot too, but the thing, the 1982 version mm-hmm. by John Carpenter. Okay. Yeah. Five. Five. Now this this movie I'm sure influenced uh, Mark and my career a lot. Um, Silence of the Lambs, oh, 1991. God. Yeah. Yeah. Ted Talley, written by book by um, Thomas Harris and directed by Jonathan Demme. You know, uh, a Roger Corman graduate, John Demme. Mm, yeah, uh, that's a wonderful, wonderful film. I've seen it, I don't know how many times. Yeah. I just watched it not too long ago. Yeah. Number four? Number four, uh, of course, ni- uh, 1960, um, Alfred Hitchcock's great masterpiece, Psycho. Psycho definitely. Yeah. I think uh, the, these two films, The Science of Lamps and Psycho, definitely put um, serial killers in the limelight yeah. and also made them realistic. Right. Well, there was there was a couple others. There was uh, The Boston Strangler, mm-hmm. and um, there was a few, uh, like uh, Hitchcock did a film called The Lodger. Mm-hmm. It was a, I think it was a silent film, but it was about um, uh, Jack the Ripper. And so there had been a few before that, but definitely right. Psycho, put, Psycho put it on the map. And then Toby Hooper came along with... Uh, Texas Chainsaw. Yeah, Texas Chainsaw. Okay, number three? Definitely. Number three. Now, this is a classic. Um, 1920s, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Oh, sure. That's con- isn't that considered the first horror yeah, movie? Yeah, definitely. German Expressionism? Definitely. Stuff, German yeah. Expressionism. Um, cinematography is absolutely amazing. Art direction is absolutely amazing. And the best part about it is a silent film yeah. that can still scare you to this day. Yeah, that's a great choice. Number yeah. two, number two. Um, every everybody else put this number one, but I say this number two. The Shining, Kubrick. The Shining. I yeah. didn't. I didn't love The Shining. I, it was okay. Yeah, it's a slow blade. Yeah, it's it's definitely creepy when those little girls are in the hallway and the kid goes Red Rum, Red <laughs> Rum. Come play with us, Danny, <laughs> forever and ever and ever. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a terrific. I, I got to go, you guys. I got to go. <laughs> Number one? And number one all the time, and this is everybody's number one, um, The Exorcist. Oh, God. Yeah, William Franklin. Mm. Yeah, especially if you grew up Catholic and me, Mark. Ooh. This movie really impacts you. I, I <laughs> cannot watch that to this day. I cannot watch that movie. <laughs> I cannot. See, I cannot. So. What do you guys think? What, uh, what do you think of the list? I think that's a great list, by it the is, way. It's Thank a you. solid list. Yeah. It's very solid. I, wouldn't, I don't know if I would, if I would change much of it. Um, I think The Exorcist... Uh, for me, I mean, it's. It, I know it's a good movie if I can't watch it again. I mean, I'm yeah. an adult now. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm an old adult, and I still can't watch that effing movie. So, Lair? Yes, I agree. And, and, and Calgary was just fantastic, and so was uh, Nosferatu, the oh, first Nosferatu, Dracula. Yeah, that was terrifying. Yeah. Well, and, and my understanding was that they, the... The he the person the director producer somebody couldn't get the rights to Dracula, Dracula yeah. so they created he created his own vampire yes. right who was carrying his coffin you know, under his arm right. and he was so skinny it was yeah like now let me ask you guys any of those uh, classic universal horror films the monster yeah. uh, any of those uh, as as far as horror not for me personally but I mean I certainly enjoy them mm-hmm. uh, like the werewolf or something yeah actually what was it? is it Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Yeah, where like he's frozen at the end of his. That's, like, yeah. I, I do enjoy them, but they're not. They're, they were not scary. I saw them as a kid, and they weren't scary. They were just adventure. Uh, some of them. I, I, I think. The, I think the Wolfman for me was. Mm-hmm. I didn't. Wasn't particularly afraid well, of. I, I guess maybe it's just part of how I grew up. But like, I, I, what I find with the Universal movies is, um, all of the the big bads are very sympathetic. Yeah, and, and they were screwed over by somebody else, mm-hmm. and so they do bad things. Frankenstein's monster, uh, the mummy, uh, the, the wolfman—they do bad things, but they are the—they are the good guy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I think what they always show in those, and maybe it's a lot about whale, James Whale, James uh-huh. Whale. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Maybe it was something about James Whale that, like, 
uh, a perfectly handsome person in a suit was far more evil than someone where you could see the physical mm-hmm. thing that made them a monstrosity. Mm-hmm. I think for me, the Wolfman scared me most because it reminded me of my Italian aunts because they, they were so hairy. Yeah. <laughs> Larry? <laughs> One of the most terrifying movies for me also was a movie called The Freaks. Oh, yeah, I remember that. By Todd, Todd, Todd Browning, Browning, yeah. Browning yeah. who did Dracula. And Freaks it, Like Us, Freak Like Us, or something yes. like that. Changing the guy, people who tormented them at the circus right. into yeah. a freak, you know. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that is a wonderful list. I, uh, you know, the thing is, is you, I could probably my my intermediate semesters mm-hmm. are ten weeks long, and I could probably assign your top ten list and and just kill. Uh, you know, because the thing about these horror films is they're not only great horror and scares, but they're really, really well done stories mm-hmm. of of adventure, of uh, of horror, of going beyond yourself. Like I love the fact in Halloween that this young, you know, fairly um, innocent young girl is mm-hmm. is terrorized by one of the most horrifying. I would be horrified if that guy came after me, I probably would melt on the floor and I'd be, you yeah. know, sitting in a in a pile of my own excrement. Uh, you know, it's, she's so, she's, even though she's afraid, she still somehow makes it. So, yeah. that's what's so good about them. They, they, they transcend and that's why the bad ones are so bad. Is because they don't they they throw buckets of blood on the screen and right. think yeah. that's what's that's what's scary. Right. No, it, no well, that isn't. I, I think I'm looking at. Um, I wrote down Vic's list as he was reading it. If what what would be the the thing that conceivably ties them or most of them together? Because not just because it gives us insight into, into well, Vic's wait, mind. Before you before we answer that, let uh, Talia ask her question because I think I know I have a um, I have the answer to that. Okay, do. But uh, but you do have a do you have a uh, a take on this? Well, I, now that you stole all my thunder, <laughs> I was no. just gonna I was just gonna say that like like the difference between the universal ones and these are somebody that's sympathetic and identifiable, mm-hmm. so that the true like by making them a victim, it is a it is a tragic thing mm-hmm. to do. Well, even the even the Kurt Russell character that you mentioned in the thing, he's not exactly. Helpless. He's a no, but he's, he's a, innocent, right? Yeah, but he's yeah. a he's a guy. He's just like you said, a truck driver, yeah. kind of blue collar guy. I think that's a great take on that character. So, mm-hmm. all right, we're going to move on to the Q and A. Um, and uh, what, at some point, Talia is going to Talia is sitting here very nicely and primly, and she's doing her work, some work or something like that. But uh, she doesn't have a mic, so Mike's, uh, Victor's going to have to shift it over. And then, Toby, you can weigh in on this um, with some of what you have to say about that, because I think that's really a good, um, a good um, recognition in horror films is the character is definitely one of those things. So, But go okay. ahead, Talia. Hi. Hello, Mark. I was just wondering, what do you need to make a good horror script? Uh, so my number one thing in any script is the villain, period. Yeah. End of story. Without a great villain, you just don't have a great script. Um, and if that villain's internalized, if it's alcoholism or drug adu- abuse, that's that's one thing. Usually, you ed- you end up um, a- a putting a-, a physical presence to that. But if you look at all the films, that's why I stopped you, Toby, because I was afraid you were going to say that, um, and that would kind of steal my thunder. But um, if you look at Night of the Living Dead, Hellraiser, Halloween, Jaws, The Thing, any of those movies has an absolutely incredible villain, and that villain has an agenda. Now, even in Halloween, 
Michael Myers was killing um, the, the, his girlfriend over and over again, right? He was killing his sister. Sister, and right. And then Lori right. turns out to be his sister. Right, right. Oh, spo- spoiler alert for us. <laughs> it's a 40-year-old movie. But, I mean, uh, Silence of the Lambs, what a great set of villains. The Exorcist, my God, you don't get any more evil than the freaking devil that inhabits the well, – how old was she in the movie? Twelve? Like Twelve, yeah. 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 So, Masturbating with a cross. <laughs> Yes, she was. Another spoiler for a 45-year-old movie. (laughs) No, but I mean, uh, to me, that's the – and um, I see this in my class a lot where people say, gee, I want to write a blank movie. And they have great characters. They have a great hero. They have a great concept. But they don't have a great villain. And the villain is what determines – any any movie that's worth its salt mm-hmm. works around a great villain, period. Right. And so identifying that villain, because it's hard to come up with a great villain. I mean, it used to be, you know, we you, we go through these shifts in all movies with, uh, you know, oh, now it's uh, Muslims or Arabs. And then right. it used to be black people who were, you know, bad. And then it was um, Mexican people, right. gangs and stuff like that. Now we're like going that. to North yeah, Koreans. Yeah, that's going to be, it's going to be uh, that, those crazy North those crazy, wacky North Koreans. I mean, <laughs> but in horror, you definitely need a great villain. And and even if the villain like Jaws, that's a more of a force of nature than an mm-hmm. actual agenda. But that shark was pissed at people. It, yeah. it wasn't about to put up with it. And yeah. so it went after. Yeah. So uh, I think uh, I think going off of what you're saying, Mark, and, you know, um, what what makes these great horror villains so great is that they, they, they're definitely the physical personifications of the id. It right. wants what it wants, when it wants it, and nothing's going to tell it anything Absolutely. else. And that's any villain. That actually describes any villain is a personification of id. I love that. I yeah. Love that. While the, the opposite is true, though. The protagonists, they're these people who are, like Topi was saying, they're innocent, they're everyday people, but they've conformed with society. Yeah, they're just, they're yeah. just big spoilers, that's all. Yeah. Right. And the id cannot exist with society whatsoever. Right. Right. Well, it can, but it well. Absolutely right. Finish right. your thought, please. Because no. No, 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 no. I well, don't have a thought. Just, after just that. looking at this list, one of the things I noticed that does unify a lot of them is that um, the, the figure of speech of fate, of fate worse than death. Mm-hmm. A lot of these involve a fate worse than death mm-hmm. because it's about loss of identity. The devil taking over yeah. a young you're girl. You're possessed. It's a fate worse than death. Mm-hmm. Night of the Living Dead. You become a zombie. Right. You That's become right. that. You lose mm-hmm. your individuality. Right. Uh, Hellraiser also had the the army of the the thingy. Cenobites. Been a while. But yeah, the, the pointy head sad people, um, the thing, obviously, the shining, the shining. Yeah. Uh, Silence of the Lambs. It, it's a killer that, pardon the friend, skins his humps. You yeah. lose yourself and become your. Well, you're tortured the ingredients. For, for three or four days. Yeah. By, you're down in a cistern yeah. and you're you're yeah. reduced to the, the base ingredients right. of, of a person, right. but, of a but the loss yeah. of humanity, which is worse than death, and that's why I think slasher movies kind of lose that uh, uh, impact by just going like. And then they're dead. Yeah. Well, the, some slasher movies I think are really fantastic. Like I enjoyed um, the the ones that took place in the camps where the kids went and they were killed mm-hmm. one by one and stuff like that. Right. Sleepaway Camp. Huh? Yeah. That's a great one. Yeah. But um, but I mean, you're right. There, it's it's a fate worse than death. Instead of just getting killed, which is a which would be, you know, kind of cool. Instead of getting. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. absorbed by the devil. It's, it's a slightly more sophisticated, right. noble, uh, right. bad thing. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right, uh, another. We have another question. Okay, can I put famous people into my script, Mark? Uh. Um, there's. A, it's hard to answer this question because the the the, the short answer is yes. As long as you're not uh, libeling or slandering a person, if you're saying something, uh, uh, if you put in John Kennedy, and you say um, he had an affair with uh, uh, um, Eleanor Roosevelt. You can be sued for that by both Eleanor Roosevelt and by John Kennedy's family. But if you say John Kennedy 
um, had a bad leg or a bad back or had an affair with if it's if it's commonly known and it's well documented you can use it you just can't make up you can't slander a person you still cannot slander even a famous person so putting a person in a script is fine writing a script about that person is fine as long as you're sticking to publicly known information and uh, the caveat in that is you can't just take one book and say I'm going to write a script that that reflects this book because that could be that guy's opinion, or it could be copyrighted material. Yeah, so yeah. it's a it's a touchy touchy subject. My best advice for you is to hey, the, the scripts. All scripts are vetted by um, there's a service that goes in and determines if it's legal or not legal for you to mention somebody. And if it gets to that point where you're going to get the script made, they will go in and they will they will score your script. I can't remember what the service is called. They did they did it on three or four of mine. It's really amazing because they take they. They go down into the depths of the script. Was um, it that one where JFK has a relationship with Eleanor Roosevelt? Shh, I, still, I still hope they sell that. So. Anyway, um, you can put them in there. I wouldn't put living people necessarily. Uh, like I wouldn't put a president yeah. um, because some of them are insane. I think it's Gary Sanchez Productions. They're doing a movie about Dick Cheney. Mm. Um And so it's, it's kind of the exceptions that prove the rule. Like satirically, you can get away with a lot. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, Oliver Stone made uh, W. George Bush is still with us. He's still yeah. alive. So, so that could have been actionable. Um, but you're, you're right. It, it opens, a, it opens a, a big can of worms. Like, so, well, so I think you're right to say that you, you, you definitely have to be careful. Yeah, you, you, you have to source more than one. More than, you have to go yeah. to five or six sources and make sure that you're not, you're not slandering that person. But, uh, again, film companies will not um, release a script until they vet it. And so you're, you're fine to write whatever you, are, you want to write. But you, you actually sign something called um, Certificate of uh, certificate. Oh God, of Authorship, something like that, where you indemnify that what you have in your script is yours, you wrote it, um, and, the, and the film company had nothing to do with your original version. And so they, they go after you from that legal standpoint based on the Certificate of Authorship. And that's part of every contract that I've ever, even low, 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 low budget uh, films, make you sign certificates of authorship. Yeah. So. so definitely something to talk to an attorney yeah, about. Yeah, I would. I would. Yeah. Well, I mean, not when you're writing it, but certainly at some point you need to make some bullet points and talk to a legal authority, or you know, just find out. Type into Google: Has somebody sued? Blah 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 regarding this. So that's the cheap, the poor man's version. So. Yeah. All right. One more question. Is it okay to write scenes out of order, Mark? I don't think so. I think that's a ridiculous way to write. Um, I, you know, I know it's easy to sit down and say, gee, I have this inspiration for this scene, but you, if you're writing a script, it has to have a flow. That flow a lot of times is determined by what you're doing previous to a scene you're writing. And so I, I'm not going to say that you that you can't because I'm sure people do, but I don't allow it in my classes. I don't allow the people to turn in uh, sequences out of order. Uh, like, a, like somebody will say, well, I have these next 10 pages are blank and then I have 10 pages I want to turn in. No, I'm sorry. I don't care. I want to see how that develops. So I don't know how anybody else feels about it, but for me, it is absolutely essential to write in sequence, to be in the moment for your script. And then to, 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 if you have to write, if you have to write a scene out of sequence, write some notes, put it in your box and then come to it later. Yeah. I'm in the, the same school of thought as you, Mark. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. They have to write it in order. It's like, um, cause you know, I'm also an engineer. 
um, it's also it's like checking someone's math. You know, yeah. when yeah. you do it in order, I can see the long division. See that's, a, that's a great analogy. Well, it's because, also like writing a computer program, right? You yeah. don't write a subroutine before you write the one mm-hmm. before it, right? So yeah. that's it is a good analogy. You're, You're looking at me like I could write a computer program in a billion <laughs> I'm years. I'm sure you could. Over here, Mark, over here. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I, I, I think I, – because I, I, I often analogize screenwriting to uh, – the people who do best in my classes are computer programmers and attorneys mm-hmm. because every day, everything they do is goal-oriented. Yeah, logical linear thought exactly. is rewarded. Absolutely. Exactly. And that's – so – and I've, I've programmed a lot in the past, and you just don't sit down and write – you, you have to write, like you're saying, with mm-hmm. math. You have to write it one one step at a time. Uh, now, you might have a subroutine you borrow from somebody else, or mm-hmm. it goes here and it does this, but it's going to be part of that. It's already going to be written into a certain function. You right. don't write the subroutine out of order. Mm-hmm. You write everything logically. It has a logical context. Absolutely. Absolutely. So. You better hope. So, Toby, uh, I know you can, don't consider yourself a, a bona fide horror guy, although you you loved uh, Victor's top list. I, I think. did, I did. Yeah, um, but you did. Yeah, I know you have an appreciation for the Saw movies. I do. It's newfound. Uh, when I knew we were going to be talking about horror, I was a little nervous because I don't consider myself a horror fan, and I was afraid we were going to start talking about a bunch of things I didn't know anything about and just go like, "Let's dumb. They just kill people with a machete." Um, and one of the thing, thing, things sort of I found like one of the more troubling uh, developments in horror movies are just basically the, the torture porn movies mm. and uh, the Blumhouse, or, and, the yeah. Blumhouse which is which is fantastic. It's very market oriented, right. very smart people. But but it's just like but to me it seemed like empty calories, like the Saw movies. So I did a little I did a little reading on the Saw movies and I found this really great analysis of it. Um, that gave me kind of a new appreciation for the Saw movies. If I can just remember what I got, it's a little heady, but uh, the Saw movies on the surface are about the, the jigsaw guy, Tobin Bell, and he uh, he's punishing people because he's a jerk. But there's a lot more to it than that. And what they what the, what this this uh, this essay, it was a video essay, what it differentiated was that all of the uh, the traps that Tobin Bell places those characters into are survivable, mm-hmm. but all of his disciple characters, because in the, in the subsequent films he picks the people, the, they are just they just want to kill people. They're just uh, sadists, mm-hmm. and he is actually uh, on a on a, a path of, of behavior which is in keeping with. And this is where it gets definitely junior junior college philosophy class. Um, Kierkegaard talked about becoming your best self, your godly self. You had to suffer, and the path to heaven was suffering. Mm-hmm. So what Tobin Bell's character, what Jigsaw is doing, is creating scenarios for you to suffer so that you can so be you can worthy, so that you can transcend. And you're like, oh, well, that's, that's interesting. I don't really know if I buy it. But then they reinforce it with a lot of really good examples, and the differentiation being his disciples, the ones he picks to follow on his work, they just want to torture you to death. And it is shallow. Mm-hmm. But all of the traps that he creates were survival. If you were prepared to do that horrible thing, cut off your arm, whatever it was, you, 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 you will survive. You will suffer because as we learned in the, in the sequels, he suffered. The, the character suffered. Right. I mean, almost cartoonishly, sorry, almost cartoonishly how he suffered. But he suffers and creates a scenario where people are then – and I'm just like, whoa – 
I know that 95% of the folks watching this movie are just watching it because it's effed up. Mm-hmm. And they like to see the, like, you can't get that thing off your head and the, the clock is ticking and it's going to crush and you stab and it's pokey and nasty. It blows up. And- uh, but, 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 like, the, the truth uh, of it, the rules, you know, the rules of it, we always talk about making, there, there's rules. Those rules are, are pretty legit. Yeah. And and uh, I have to admit, uh, it, it does make me want to go back and watch the films sort of with that uh, through line. Right. I, now, I've seen the first one. I haven't seen the subsequent ones, and I know Jigsaw's in the theaters. But mm-hmm. I, li- I thought the first one was brilliant. I really did. I didn't realize the the existential nature of it. But yeah. I, I just the idea that the, he doesn't actually kill anyone. Right. Right. He they he makes them make a choice to kill somebody. And well, and also like that, that that if you're prepared to do that thing, that thing that will cause you suffer because right. you did a bad thing. He's right. really trying to restore balance. In, in yeah. The, the only I mean the only philosophical disconnect there is he suffered and it, this is what he became. Yes. So is this his best self? That is sort of the thing he's supposed to be addressing. Uh-huh. So yes, kind of like that's his burden is to help other people it is in that respect it's kind of interesting well thanks toby that was great can you give us a link to i mean we can yeah, put it I, in the I, show notes I, i'll dig it up in the show notes actually i'm pretty sure it was um i'm sure i watched it on youtube but uh it's because i was just i just wanted to be prepared to discuss okay. horror no it's a it's great it's a great idea i'd love to i'd love to delve into it a little bit so you know another great thing about the salt franchise and the salt guys is you know they're two guys that didn't know anybody from Australia and they make this great short mm-hmm. film mm-hmm. and they win all these you know these independent horror film festivals and they come over to LA not knowing a single soul but their their material is booked for itself and yeah, they, they and got they're the, minting money yeah, yeah, yeah they got the greatest deal on the planet after well, that well and, and that goes back to the villain I mean yeah. the concept and the villain that's what you need for a great horror film mm-hmm. and if you have a if you have a great villain, you can franchise that villain if it's successful, and then you just don't have to ever work for the rest of your life. So. But yeah, they and, still work. And actually, kind of to tie it back again to Carpenter, it's a similar thing. Like, the two guys that make the Saw movies, they might not be uh, students of Kierkegaard, but they tapped into a thing, right. which is the same thing a human, that person a, tapped a, into. A basic human. A basic human thing. Like, what if you were of the belief that everybody was impure and had to get to this place. So instead of just being like, what if, I don't know, you're messed up and you got too many machetes, which is unfortunately, it's it's not a bad reason can to go I, make Can you movie. have too many machetes? You're giving them to other people. Here, <laughs> hold on to this. I'll come back for it. Put your hand out. Let me give you this machete. Yeah. There are many things we do as writers, many skills we have to gain, techniques that must be learned, honed, and incorporated. But one on, one in particular is job one. Anybody know? Uh, well, at Ford, quality was job one. Okay. Thank you for your participation. Uh, now, this is not a dirty word, even though it starts with an M and ends with an A-T-E. Victor's mind is already going to masturbate. Uh, <laughs> it's Manipulate. Uh, there's a famous exchange in the movie The Big Chill. Michael, Jeff Goldblum, says, I don't know anyone who could get through the day without two or three juicy rationalizations. They're more important than sex. Sam Weber, who's Tom Berenger, says, Ah, oh, come on, nothing's more important than sex. And Michael says, Oh, yeah, ever go a week without a rationalization? I would say that we could not even go a day without manipulation. It's a natural function of who we are, whether you admit it or not. Manipulation in art is essential, any form of art. 
As a writer, you're creating worlds that don't exist, and you must convince us, manipulate us, if you will, into believing these are possible. And it doesn't matter if it's Tatooine or a grimy neighborhood in Queens. Likewise, when we create characters, we're manipulating aspects of human nature to provide a foundation for these characters. Anti-heroes, in my opinion, are particular interest, particularly interesting. Texter, Dexter, Dexter, <laughs> Dexter. That's the millennial version. That'll be the edgy, edgy <laughs> reboot. Edgy, yeah. Dexter, Tony Soprano, Cersei Lannister, or brother Tyrion, Hannibal Lecter. We're all manipulated. We're, we are manipulated by the writers of these characters and show to feel a certain way about them, usually benign in some form, even though they exhibit challenging behavior. This is in happenstance. Unfortunately, I know because I've created many unlikable characters, but not on purpose. It's hard to create a selfish, self-serving character and make people respond to them favorably. But it has to be done if your main character is an anti-hero. How in the world did anyone put up with House MD for all those eight wonderful seasons? Or Sherlock Holmes, in which House is based? None of these characters possess as much human warmth or empathy, and yet we adore them. Because a writer has cleverly convinced us that they are justified in their made-up world to be the way they are. Tony Soprano is not a psychopathic killer, in case you didn't know. He's just a businessman who gives back what was given to him. The world that David Chase surrounded him with gave him that permission to stab, beat, mutilate, and shoot. Sons of Anarchy, another great world with great characters, but honestly, motorcycle bandits who sell drugs and run guns, really? How about The Shield? Warm and fuzzy? That's pretty laughable. But we did love those characters in their lives. You betcha. So on this prelude to Halloween and the frightful films that will be making their way to the theaters, it's worth remembering that we respond to horror because we are manipulated into it. The world and characters are carefully crafted, so these situations that they are in makes it, well, horrifying. If Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween was a bitch, we wouldn't care if Michael Myers took her out. But because the writer has manipulated us, shown us how nice and lovable she is, we do in fact squeal like piglets when she's chased or when Myers suddenly pops out from behind a piece of furniture. We don't want her to die. We like her. We really, really like her. Nothing in your work should be random or cavalierly placed. You are the master of the worlds you're creating, and we need to be convinced that they not only exist, but more importantly, that the world we normally live in does not. That creates a really empathetic, a strong empathetic response because we're no longer in our world. We're in their world. You have to pull us in, make us want it, transport us, manipulate us into ignoring our world for the time we're spending in yours. That's the true job of a writer. There's really not a facet of our lives that doesn't involve manipulation. Why do we get our hair cut or put makeup on or dress in a certain way? You all know the answer to that. It's, in art, it's essential. Music, earworms are crafted that way. In the book, The Demolished Man, the villain hires a jingle writer to deliberately create an earworm to keep his mind distracted. If you need to know why, then read it. I'm not telling you. It's a good book. It's a great book, actually, written by Alfred Bester and, ver- and took the very first Hugo Award winner. Television, commercials, sculptures, paintings, video games, comic books, you name it, and it's the artist manipulating you and embracing the worlds and characters they've created to evoke a response. No art exists that doesn't want to create some sort of an emotional response, and in order to do that, you have to manipulate it. Well, how do they do that? It's a simple fact that it's a skill you have to learn in practice. You start with a concept or a character, and then, as was mentioned in a previous segment, 
logically determine what else you need to make that character or concept believable so that you can manipulate the audience into accepting your vision. And really, folks, it's not dirty or ugly in any way. It's the same way you try to get someone to do something for you by presenting your arguments or rationale. An artist does exactly the same thing. It's a logical progression of concepts that you're creating in order to pull us into your, your world. And by now, I hopefully have convinced you of that, that it's not a dirty word, and it's the most important skill any writer can learn. And how did I do that? by carefully manipulating the words, phrases, and concepts in this segment to make my case. So, here comes another manipulation. Be inspired. Do good work. What do you guys think? Yeah? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. beautiful. Yeah. yeah. The, in, in my opinion, manipulation is the only job of a writer, whether it's you know, characters, story, scenes, whatever it is. And where we get it wrong, I think a lot of people get it wrong, is you imitate that you don't innovate it. You think, okay, well, if somebody dies by cutting them open, that's a scary thing. No, that's not it. Because you're not pulling us into that world. You're not creating that manipulation. Yeah. So. I mean, it, it's and you bring it up, and it's it's kind of a it's a hack phrase. Uh, not to mention one of the most popular screenwriting books of you know an ambiguous reputation. Mm -hmm. But uh, save the cat. Right. The cheapest, quickest, shortest way to manipulate, right? And and I think that that's where that's where people get it wrong. Right. Is it basically if you do it by the book, uh, and then a phrase Mark you like to use is to establish who the good guy is and the bad guy is. Uh, kiss the baby, kick the dog. Exactly. Now Sorry. the way that you interpret and do that creatively, mm -hmm. that is an effective manipulation. Well, and absolutely, but, but just having somebody be nice to a cat. Mm -hmm. Is, is is not manipulation, and well, you see that you see that so many times. Yeah, kick the dog is a phrase we used forever, and uh, Blake Snyder just used save the cat as a as a kind of I think uh, ironic. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. kiss the baby, kick the dog is all the way we we always learned it, and that's yeah. that's a manipulation. If you want somebody, if you're introducing somebody to somebody before that person comes into the room, you typically go, oh, he's a great guy, or or he's a real shit. And so you, you're already being manipulated into a certain um, mindset before that person comes into the room. That's what we're doing with film, you know, especially with opening sequences. If you look at uh, some of the op great opening sequences like The Thing, we're being manipulated into uh, a horror state of mind, even though there's real no, no real horror in that film in the beginning. It's yeah. just... It's just amazing. What's that dog running from? I've never seen a dog being chased by a helicopter that's shooting at it. Yeah. So, so and, and the manipulation for that one exactly is something is wrong. Well, the, plus the I'm, dog. Wait, I'm exactly. already involved What's in going on here? something not making sense. Well, plus the dog. When you see the dog, if you watch the opening, which is available on YouTube, the dog licks every human being it comes in contact right. with. That's, that's a universal expression of I'm not going so – I'm a good dog, right? I'm a good dog. That, that dog is – that's how brilliant Carpenter was with that film because that dog is, is – it's man's best friend and it's licking you. Why would anybody want to kill that fucking dog? Yeah. You, so, I mean, it's, it's just – and these are the questions. If you're doing it right, your audience isn't asking these questions on an uh, uh, intellectual level. Yeah. They're asking these questions on an emotional level. Sure. And, and that's where man, the really good manipulation comes in. So. Yeah. I just wanted to touch on, the, yeah. the, on the, the topic of manipulation and how, you know, you talked a lot about the antiheroes. Um, I know, like, a lot of people here, uh, we all grew up as major Marvel Comics fans, but an uh, uh, antihero – who I think the writers did a great job manipulating me to care about even though it's the most heinous acts ever, 
The Punisher. Mm. I cannot wait to November 17th, yeah. The Punisher on Netflix. Yeah. And Joe Berthnall's performance as The Punisher, incredible. But mm. you have this guy who's just taking out criminals in the most horrendous ways you imagine. But when you understand who he is as a person and what has happened to him, you know, he's a lot like the horror villains we just covered because, you know, how they're sympathetic because they're victims. All right. Well, we had a we had a great time. Thank you very much um, for listening. We are here again in uh, with uh, but you won't be here, right, Toby? Uh, uh, I think I'm it? here next time, but I won't be here the, the time, time after. after. OK, anyway. But thank you, Victor, uh, Talia, for coming. Larry, as always, um, you, if you don't know, we didn't mention it, but we are in uh, Larry's offices in Newport Beach because we couldn't uh, get access to Mary Claire's offices. There's a silly thing called security. Um, so we appreciate the – I don't know how much you know about the podcast or whatever, but um, Larry's just saved our cookies many, uh, many times before, and we do appreciate it. And, you know, talk about a guy who has encyclopedic knowledge about movies – I uh, we had him doing uh, Jaws quotes uh, before the podcast, and he did a whole he did the whole say he did all of Quinn's dialogue by heart from memory. So, well, actually, yeah, at that point, if I can, Larry, can I manipulate you into taking us out with uh, Quinn's uh, Quinn's conversation from from Jaws, the bit you were doing? Because I love that part. It's actually my favorite part of that movie. Is it, well, maybe he's talking to Hooper. You know. Yeah. And, yeah. Hooper comes in trying to impress him, you know, with, I've, I've crewed three trans packs, you know, and he's, you know, just about calls it bullshit, you know, and says, uh, I'm not talking about going down the pond and catching bluegills and tommyhawks. He says, I'm talking about sharking. I'm talking about working for a living. Let me see your hands. you got city hands. You've been counting money all your life. <laughs> I love that. He does that all the time, too, not just with Jaws, but with all these films. So well, It is a Bible, kind of. You can use lines from it in every situation. Yeah, but the problem is remembering them. I can't remember. I don't know. You, they come <laughs> off your tongue like you like you were born to it. But anyway, I also want to mention a couple things. OC Screenwriters, uh, who we all are board members of, is having an event on November 11th. We're, we're, uh, you can go to uh, ocscreenwriters.com for information about the event. We're also on Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter. Uh, just yeah, I'll put it. Uh, I think I have links in the show notes for OC Screenwriters. The website for the podcast is plotpoints.com. You can uh, either ask a question using the contact form, or you can call nine nineteen scripts, which is the phone number to leave a message to, uh, to or talk to or comment on the podcast. And we've had some really nice comments uh, in the past, so thank you very much. And uh, I think I've uh, Mary Claire. We missed you, but uh, you, we were we were um, we were covered here with uh, between Victor, Talia, and uh, Larry. Thanks, guys. Um, love you all. Uh, please uh, continue to support us. And if you have any suggestions or uh, things we could do differently or better, we'd love to hear hear from you. That's uh, plotpoints.com or nine nineteen scripts.